ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Coffee and Kernels. I'm Bryce, and this is a Bankrupt Hippo podcast series I like to call Coffee and Kernels, which I talk about all the things I love to enjoy consuming while enjoying some coffee and some popcorn, which include movies, video games, TV shows, um, hot sauces in some cases, and of course, coffee as well. So, super honored, super thrilled that you're back here again for another episode if you missed last week's episode, don't fret, it's on the YouTube channel or on the podcast series if you're listening on audio. I talked all about why I loved Zack Snyder's Justice League, which was a four-hour epic, I like to call it. It was quite good. So we had a pretty busy agenda today, so what we're going to touch on today's episode, uh, the, the series finale of The Falcon and Winter Soldier just happened, episode six. I'm going to talk about episode six, just a fair warning, there will be spoilers in that discussion, and I'll also talk about how I feel about the overall series in general. And then after that, we'll go into the Resident Evil 8 or Resident Evil Village demo that IGN released their gameplay of. I got to watch that because I didn't get to play the demo because it was only out for like eight hours. But um, I'm just going to talk about my thoughts about watching the demo, um, how excited I am for the game going forward. Then I will talk about two games that I am revisiting from the past. So there's two games called We Happy Few and The Evil Within. If you guys are familiar with this games, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, but if not, stay tuned and I'll tell you all about them. And then lastly, Xbox Cloud Gaming Implications. So Xbox Game Pass has released like a beta for their cloud service, and I'm just going to talk about what I think that means for the future of gaming. And then if we have time, I'm going to talk about my thoughts about Godzilla versus Kong, which was, I thought, a pretty entertaining movie. So let's get right into it. Now, before I talk about Falcon and Winter Soldier Episode 6, there is spoilers in this discussion for Episode 6, so if you don't want to hear any spoilers whatsoever, if you haven't seen the episode, go ahead, watch the episode, and then come back to this video, and we'll get you all squared away. So, with that out of the way, let's kind of get into it. So, Falcon and Winter Soldier Episode 6, the series finale, or at least they say it'll be the series finale, I have some suspicion that they might make a second season if they don't they'll have to really intertwine it with the rest of the marvel universe because wow there's a lot of things that were i wouldn't say a lot there were a few things that kind of went um unresolved as the series ended up wrapping up so the episode kind of begins where we leave off in episode five episode five ends with the flag smashers kind of making a move on a meeting between prime ministers of different countries trying to figure out what they're going to do with the grc and the settlement camps and basically, it's the uh, conclusion of that conflict where Sam and Bucky have to figure out what exactly to do to save those people. So first off, it opens really, really strongly. It, it opens with Sam basically flying through the building and the meeting that they're having in. And he's got this sweet new costume. It's a white Captain America um, it's got like white trim and blue body Captain America outfit. And I got to tell you, it is absolutely sweet. I'm assuming that that's what was in the box that Bucky gave Sam in the previous episode from the Wakandans. If you remember in a previous episode, Sam or not Sam, Bucky says, Hey, I had to get this for you. And I had to call in a favor to the Wakandans to get it. So I'm assuming that that outfit is what was in the box. And I got to tell you, it looks absolutely sweet. If you guys haven't seen it yet go check it out. It, it, it's something to write home about. It's absolutely phenomenal. And something that's kind of interesting, right when we see Sam in that outfit, I don't know if it's right after we see him or just a few minutes after, but they kind of make the proclamation like, hey, that's Captain America, or Sam says, I'm Captain America, which kind of shows full circle that Sam has now grown and transitioned as a character, as a person, 
to own the Captain America title that uh, he, I would say, refused before by him giving up the shield in the first place. I would say he, he refused that Captain America title. I think he used to believe that no other person should take up that mantle, and now we've seen that come full circle, and I think he's changed his mind. And the episode does a really interesting thing where it makes it abundantly clear that Sam is now Captain America. They refer to it, I believe, four or five times throughout the dialogue, and at the very end of the episode in the credits, they retitle it. They normally say, The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and at the very end, it now reads, Captain America and the Winter Soldier. If you get to the end of the episode, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about, but um, I thought this was a really suitable way to kind of wrap up the story, at least in this series or in the season for Sam, because it just shows you like the growth and the change in mindset that he's endured along the way from meeting Isaiah Bradley, from giving up the shield in the first place, from uh, his interactions with John Walker, Carly Morgan thoughts like he's been through quite a bit in this series and it's just made for some really interesting character development and i think it was very fitting that he ended up becoming and earning the title of uh captain america in this case so that's a really long and winded explanation for only going into like the first five minutes of the episode but that's just kind of what i thought about it overall and in terms of the rest of the episode so the episode kind of goes on it's your classic normal good guys chasing bad guys pursuit pretty much in this episode because the flag smashers are in the middle of attacking these politicians and then Bucky and Sam are trying to save them so they go on and do the thing and in the middle of it Sharon Carter actually ends up showing up and meets Bucky it, there's really no explanation as to why she's there in the first place she just kind of shows up and says hey I'm here to help and she she does exactly what she's there to do which is help Bucky and Sam take down the flag smashers which um, I'm glad we get to see more of Sharon Carter. I think the one thing that I was really bummed about in this series overall is that in the third episode, we get to see Sharon Carter. And I, in my mind, I was like, man, I'm really looking forward to seeing her in more episodes. And we really don't see her th throughout the rest of the series until episode six, which I'll touch on my thoughts on that a little bit later. But it, it was just good to see her again. She's doing her thing. And it, it, she didn't really stand out in the episode, but... I'm just glad that she was there because if she wasn't in, if she was only in one episode in the series, I would have kind of scratched my head. Like why introduce her at all? It was, it would just wouldn't have been fitting. I think it would have hurt the series without her in this episode. But anyways, so in the middle of the episode, as well as this pursuit is going on, who else comes back, but John Walker this time in his old Captain America suit and the Captain America shield, which he made, which, of course, isn't made of vibranium. It's just made of whatever metal he probably had around in his shop that he handmade himself. And you can really, really tell throughout the fighting that he engages with the Flag Smashers. Because by the time the fighting is over, his shield is beat to hell. Like, you can tell it, it's not made of the world's strongest metal. It's probably, it could be made of aluminum or steel for all I know. And the Flag Smashers just absolutely annihilate it. So it looks like a child's, like, plaything by the time it's all over. So, it... It was a strange, it was a strange, it was just an interesting thing overall. I don't really have any thoughts about him returning in that episode in general, only that it was fitting. He's there to get, or to, I guess, make amends or get comeuppance to Carly because she, in fact, killed his best friend Lamar in episode four. If you haven't seen that episode, I thought that was the strongest one in the series. But it, the, the, there was a really interesting moment between. John Walker and Carly Morgenthau in the middle of all this fighting where um, John, he confronts Carly and he says, Morgenthau, I'm here to basically 
avenge my friend for lack of a better word. And she says something really interesting. She was like, Lamar's she I'm paraphrasing, of course, I don't remember the exact line, but she says basically Lamar's life didn't matter. And you can just see in John Walker's heart in his eyes, he's like, you're saying you killed my best friend and his life didn't even matter. And she makes a really interesting point that I didn't expect her to say, which was his life didn't matter to my cause. So she wasn't really saying that his life didn't matter because obviously that would just be, I think, a little too dark for Carly Morgan, though, as a character. But she's saying, I'm not really here to hurt. It's not personal. It's just I'm here for the cause because there's a greater good that I'm fighting for. It's not just about Lamar. He's basically just collateral damage. And I think I I I felt so bad for John Walker in that moment because that's his best friend who he went and fought through four tours, three tours, I think it was, with. And it, it, she kind of just looks at him as a casualty of war while John looks at him as his life, his best friend, his lifelong friend. And it was just really interesting to see that all kind of come to a head in the grander scheme of things. It's like what people lose may seem very small in the grand scheme of things, but they mean somebody to, they mean a lot to somebody out there somewhere. And I just thought that was kind of eye opening to really see that uh, kind of come to fruition. So a little bit on that introduction there. And then the, the, everything kind of keeps going on. Like I said, I'm kind of like brushing through a lot of the action that really goes on. Cause there is a lot of it in this episode. One thing's for sure. You won't be bored at all because it's a classic Marvel action packed adventure with some really good moments in between the next good in between moment. I think I saw was Carly and three or four other flag smashers that we see throughout the series, like three or four of her friends. I can't remember their names. I don't even think they really mention them very much throughout, but she says that, you know, I'm not really afraid to die. We all have to be prepared to die because the cause can go on without us. The cause does not need their leader, Carly Morgenthau or the rest of the super soldiers anymore because they've raised the cause to be big enough in order to have a really good following, which I think they've demonstrated that pretty well in previous episodes, especially at the end of episode five or in in that park. I thought that was an interesting touch overall, but there's, you can just tell that the characters are so the, I'm sorry, Carly Morgenthau seems like she's really the only one who's hundred percent balls to the wall. I'm ready to die for this cause out of the entirety of the flag smashers. And I think that's where, the series falls short in sort of emphasizing how powerful Carly is as a leader and how powerful the cause actually is. I never really bought into it, honestly, throughout the series. It's like those other three Black Smashers that Carly was with who have taken the Super Soldier Serum, when as soon as she talks about death and dying and dying for the cause, they are all kind of like, they all give each other this look like, are you willing to die? I'm not willing to die. You're not, not, not no, we're not willing to die. And then Carly kind of like forces it out of them. She's got to kind of beat out of the word, like beat it out of their, beat their confidence out of them through brute force. And you can just really tell she never really has the fully supported backing that a cause would need in order to really support dying for it, I guess you could say. So it's like as a leader, I, because of moments like that, because there were several of them that happened throughout the series, I never really bought into Carly Morgenthau as a strong leader. I think she just got so deep entrenched into this cause and just took her friends along with her. And then now her friends are kind of realizing like, I am not ready or prepared for this. And it, it just really, oh, it really retracted the experience for me for 
the Slags, the Flag Smashers in general because it makes them look like a really weak group. And also it really weakens Carly Morgenthau's character because it shows that she's really not a strong enough capable leader to lead a giant cause like that, which I wouldn't be surprised because Carly Morgenthau can't be that old. I mean, they never really allude to her age. I would assume she isn't that old. I don't know if they actually say in the series if what her age is. My my assumption would be like late teens, early 20s would be her character's age, which you're never too young to lead. If you're a fantastic leader, you're a fantastic leader. Age is secondary, but for her, I just don't think her as a character, she was portrayed as a strong enough leader to actually, for us as an audience, to buy into the Flag Smashers. So I thought that was a really interesting uh, occurrence that happened in the episode overall as well. So kind of jumping a little bit later into the episode, there's a moment where Carly and the Flag Smashers get separated. They're running away from Sam, Bucky, and now John Walker, because now John Walker's obviously in the fight, and also don't forget Sharon Card in the background as well. And the Flag Smashers split up, and then, of course, Sam and Bucky and John Walker go in their different directions. Bucky and John go in one, and then Sam pursues Carly, which only makes a ton of sense, right? Because throughout the epi- throughout the series, Sam is the one who's probably the most qualified and has demonstrated that he is definitely the most qualified to talk Carly down because he believes that they're still good in Carly and that he can help her because that's what Sam do- does. That's what he's always done in the MCU. So the next most interesting moment is Carly is running away from Sam. Sam can't find her. Well, who does Carly run into but Sharon Carter and basically in this moment Sharon Carter reveals that she's the power broker she's been the power broker all along which me as a fan I'm not really too surprised at all that she was the power broker in fact in episode midway through episode four I'm kind of like Sharon Carter's literally the only person that would plausibly be the power broker I couldn't think of anybody else introduced throughout the entire series that would in fact be the power broker so it, it was a big reveal, but it didn't have the impact that it did because it's like, it, it, for me personally, I could kind of connect the dots and be like, well, it's got to be Sharon. She's got to be the power broker. So it was it was a really, to me, like a lackluster reveal, but it was a reveal nonetheless. So as fans for the series winding down, we got that closure, which is great because if we hadn't found out who the power broker definitively was, that would have been a hole in the series. I think that would have been uh, left for the imagination. I just don't think it would have been appropriate. So Sharon Carter is the power broker. She's been kind of pulling the strings the entire time. She hired the uh, French hitman, essentially, to spy on Carly. If you guys don't remember who that is, Sam fights him at the very beginning of Episode 6 and also fought uh, Steve Rogers, Captain America, and I believe it was uh, Civil War. It was the Winter Soldier. I can't remember which it was. I think it was the Winter Soldier in this case, but... um, so that big reveal kind of happens. You find out that that guy was just there to spy on Carly the entire time. Obviously, Carly's pretty heartbroken, and now we've basically got a three-gun standoff. Sharon's pointing at the uh, Sharon's pointing at Carly. Carly's pointing at her. Assassin's pointing at Carly. Everybody's pointing guns at each other, and basically at this point, no one knows now besides the hitman that she hired and Carly that Sharon is in fact the power broker at this point nobody else knows not sam not bucky no one else in the world knows so in order to kind of save that face she ends up shooting the assassin or i'm trying to remember how exactly this went down assassin shoots carly sharon shoots assassin everybody gets shot basically (laughs) in this standoff and the only one who lives through it is sharon she takes the shot to her 
left ribs and she lives and she was able to keep her secret because right after that standoff, Sam, of course, conveniently comes running in. He sees um, uh, Carly on the ground. She's dying. She Her dying words were, I'm sorry. So obviously she felt guilty about the things she did, the people she killed, and she that's, that's the end of Carly Morgenthau. And to me, that's really the end of the Flag Smashers because that... There's their leader, but who knows? We'll have to see in future series and episodes and movies in the MCU how that all kind of goes down. But the point is, Carly's character comes to an end. She passes, and Sharon gets to keep her secret that she's the power broker because the only two people in the entire series that knew that she was the power broker are now dead. So she's she's off free and clear at this point, and then she gets to kind of save face with Sam, Bucky, and everybody else. So they still look at Sharon as the Sharon that they knew, and... Winter Soldier and also Civil War, but they don't know her for who she is, which is the power broker. And it, it, the show never really, the show does a good job of making her intentions clear that she is there to retain her power and keep craving it and keep um, the basically control of, I guess, the underworld, for lack of a better term. And so I'm curious to see what she's going to do in future movies and series and episodes. Maybe she'll become a villain, but that's kind of how that all plays out. Um, and at the end of the day, Everybody gets saved. All the siders are saved. And one thing I want to touch on as this, the episode kind of winds down is Sam poses, he rests after the, all of the politicians are rescued. He poses the, these questions to these politicians, like basically like what's wrong with you? All of these billions of people are, were gone for five years and you're not doing the appropriate things to help them. So he kind of, he says, I'm paraphrasing. He basically says, do what you must do to help these people. I saved your asses today, but you guys have to learn to do the right thing to help these people if we're going to go ahead and keep protecting this world because it has to be a world worth protecting. Like I said, I'm totally paraphrasing. I can't remember everything that Sam said because the episode spends a good four or five minutes on him just portraying that message to the those leaders. And I think the message almost went on a little bit too long because I kind of got lost in it, but it was powerful nonetheless. And then the next thing that Sam does before the episode winds up, and to me, this was probably one of the most powerful moments in the series, and I'm glad that they added this in, was the fact that he went to see Isaiah Bradley one more time to show him something, essentially. And he brings him to the Captain America Museum, and lo and behold, there is an entire exhibit dedicated to Isaiah Bradley and his mission when he had to pursue the Winter Soldier. And in the words of Sam, he says, now... America will never forget what you did for them. And Isaiah is just breaking down. He's in tears. And I thought that was super, super fitting that, and it really rounded off not only Isaiah's character, but also further rounds off Sam a lot more. Like I said earlier, this episode really, and I'd say now that the series really revolves around Sam's character growth for the most part, because we've had so much of everybody else in the MCU in the past, but it shows that Sam is now ready to always do what he thinks is right, always do the right thing. And in the words of Peggy Carter, you know, even in times when people say move and you know, you're doing the right thing, you say, no, you move like you you, stick with your guns, do the right thing. Doing the right thing is always doing the right thing. And that's something that Steve always strived for. And that's a quality that Sam possesses. And he is going to carry that with him now as Captain America. So he does all the right things. He saves all the people. He challenges the people who have done wrong and know that they can do better. And he also uplifts people who might have been 
wronged in the past. So overall, like I said, this is a really big catharsis and roundup for Sam's story, which I thought was a really, really nice touch. So um, then as the episode kind of wraps up a little bit more, there's a few more um, strings that still have yet to be kind of connected. One, what's going to happen with John Walker? And two, what about Bucky? Like the, the, the one thing that really bugged me about this episode and actually the series in general is that I could have used a lot more time with Bucky and him making amends for his him being the Winter Soldier. How does he deal with um, his old man friend? I can't remember what his friend's name was off the top of my head, but like, how does that wrap up? And they really don't touch on it till literally like the last four or five minutes of the episode. And when they do, it's just it's very brief, and it's like. I, 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 like me as a fan, I was waiting for the entire series for Bucky to really make amends for those things and really feel, feel his emotions and see that growth and the pain and what it's like to come face to face with your, your demons from your past. Like from a mental health perspective, I just think that's so powerful, especially the world and the pandemic that we lived on. I just thought that could have been a really valuable message in addition to the other messages that were portrayed in the show so far. So it's not that they didn't touch on it at all. It's just, I don't think they touched on it enough is what I'm trying to say. So basically I'll cut to the chase. What Beck, what Bucky did at the end of the episode is he finally confronts his friend. He goes to his apartment. He says, I have something to tell you about your son. He tells him basically, and this all takes place within like the course of maybe 30, 40 seconds. It felt like he says, I'm the winter soldier. I killed your son. I didn't have a choice. And then like, that's that he pretty much, leaves his friend behind for what it seems like forever. Cause it seems like Bucky has now moved on. He's made amends for all the things that he's done. It's just the, the episode just kind of glosses over it. And it's like, Oh man, there, there could have just been so much more opportunity there for us as fans to really feel that catharsis for Bucky and to see Bucky go through that and make amends. Like I've said like two or three times already. And it, it's just the show really missed the mark for me. And that, and it, and to me, it, I enjoyed the episode overall, but that really, really hurt. And it really kind of hurt my outlook on the series in general, but I'll talk about that in just a minute. Moving on next to John Walker. So in the previous episode, in episode five, John Walker gets introduced to this person, this woman. I don't know who she is. And the series doesn't talk about really at all who she is. Besides, she has a card that has nothing on it and she's really mysterious and she meets up with John Walker and his wife. I can't remember her name either, but he tries on a suit that's like Captain America, but it's in instead of blue, it's in black. And then she calls him the U.S. agent. And it's like, what does this really mean for John Walker? You know, before? It just felt really out of place. And even the introduction of that character that's helping John seemed really out of place. It's like they introduced her at the very beginning of episode five, and then they just briefly throw her in there at the end of episode six it didn't make a ton of sense to me and i think that it didn't really retract from my feelings of the episode but it just begged the question why is she there and i don't think we'll get that that answer until future mcu projects so it was really interesting so i think what it all really means is there is more for john walker in the story i just don't know what that is yet and the series didn't really do a great job of showing us what that is besides that he's the u.s agent and now he's got some really mysterious lady behind him so take that for what it's worth we'll have to see what happens to him in the future and then finally at the very very end of the episode to kind of wrap it up here before i give you my thoughts on the entire series sharon carter gets her pardon from the u.s government sam tells her hey i'm keeping my promise i'm going to get you a full pardon and he fulfills on his promise 
the politicians of America give her the pardon and they even say, hey, there might even be an opening in your old division because her old job, she worked for S.H.I.E.L.D., which I think is now S.W.O.R.D., if I'm not mistaken, given WandaVision. But she says it would be my honor to go back to that. So, again, Sam's being the, the great good man that he is and being Captain America and... At the very end of the episode, Sharon says she puts in a call. She says, hey, we now have access to all of the U.S. military secrets, hoo-ha, whatever. And it's like, okay, so now Sharon gets to keep her secret that she's the power broker. She's now got a position of power in another government that she can exploit. And she's go- it sounds like she's going to do so in the future. And the episode, the series, because this is in the post credit scene, kind of just leaves it at that so it leaves it off more as a mystery so there's quite a few mysteries that are left at the end between john walker and sharon carter and i guess if they do make another uh season or seasons of captain america and winter soldier um i'm sure they'll pursue that further i don't know if they will or not or maybe they'll pursue them in the greater mcu projects and movies coming up which i just don't know how they interweave john walker as u.s agent and sharon carter as a member of um, Sword now into the greater MCU universe because it's like, okay, I feel like we've seen both of those enemy types before. It's like Sharon Carter is the the mole in the system. It's like, well, that was pretty much all of S.H.I.E.L.D. at one point with Hydra. It's like, are we really going to see that again with her as the power broker? It just seems like, I hope they don't really pursue that too much because it seems like the old same the same song and dance that we've seen before and to me that would just really kind of leave a sour taste in my mouth like yawn but i mean who knows time will tell and we'll get there when we get there so that was pretty much the full breakdown of episode six and what i thought were the implications sorry if i jumped around a little bit but what were my overall thoughts in the episode i enjoyed the episode i thought it was a suitable wrap up for the season or the series or whatever it might be and it had a lot of action if you're an mcu fan that's looking for action you'll enjoy it if you're looking for the wrap up of these characters You'll enjoy it for some, maybe not love it for others, but at the end of the day, I I enjoyed it. The series overall, though, now, how did I feel about the series? I think that the series could have used two more episodes between episodes four and five, and I also think it could have used two more episodes between five and six. I know that, I, I'm guessing that the production of the show had to get kind of halted because COVID-19, all the shooting in the pandemic, like, it happens, I totally get it. It's just without more context to the series, I, I just think there's so much more story to tell. It's like there's more story to tell with Sharon as the power broker, Madripoor in general, even Bucky, who is one of the main characters of the show. I feel like they missed so much of that. Um, the, f- the more of the flag smashers, I wouldn't have minded seeing them. But then again, their development as an entire group, I thought was pretty weak throughout the series. And I never really bought into it with more episodes. Maybe I would have bought into it more. And also, I really wanted to see, the, the series really peaked for me at the end of episode four when John Walker kills that flag smasher with the shield. We really don't get, I think, enough enough information and fallout and implications from that after that episode. Like, we see the personal price that John has to pay, but I, and I felt it to a certain extent, but I just, I would have loved to have seen... Mm-hmm more of it i guess you could say between episodes four and five and then also more of the development even from sam and bucky between five and six like i think just more episodes could have been added to this in general and even to baron zemo's character i would have loved to have seen more of baron zemo because daniel rule absolutely crushed it 
when he was in this series. Like every single second he was on the screen, it's like him, Bucky, and Sam were a trio, and he really rounded it off quite nicely. And I feel bad because I totally forgot to touch on Baron Zemo in the episode. So another post-credit scene, if I'm not mistaken, at the very end of the episode, the Flag Smashers are taken prisoner. They live through the ordeal. They get transported through an armored truck, which ends up exploding, and all of them die. So some of the super soldiers that were Flag Smashers end up dying, and we get a little um, cutscene of Baron Zemo's right-hand man. I don't want to call him his maybe his butler, for lack of a better term with a smile on his face and just sitting in the car, leaving us to believe, okay, he planted a bomb that killed those super soldiers. And then Baron Zemo is just sitting on the raft, which is the prison that they introduced in Civil War, hearing that radio announcement that, hey, the Flag flag Smashers, who were super soldiers, were killed. And then Baron Zemo's like, ah, inner peace. I love to hear it when another super soldier dies. And that kind of really wraps up his character too. And to me, it was satisfying It was satisfying enough for the series, but it wasn't satisfying in the grand scheme of things as a whole. Like, I really wanted to see more of Baron Zemo overall throughout the series. And I think the series would have very much more benefited from it. And it it would have been even better because Daniel Brule added a lot to it with Baron Zemo's character. But the one thing with Baron Zemo being on the raft that I never quite understood, the Wakandan, Bucky gave him to the Wakandans in episode five. And I swear they said they were going to take him to a Wakandan prison, but they take him to the raft, which to me isn't a Wakandan prison. So there's a little bit of a disconnect for me there. Maybe that's a nitpick. Maybe they said he, they were taking him to the raft in episode five, and I just didn't quite hear them, but I just thought that was a little strange. So um, what el- how else did I fear about the series overall? I thought it was a really good series. I really enjoyed seeing more of Sam. We get the most of Sam in the entire series, see him grow and develop. We don't get enough of some characters that I would have liked to have seen. Bucky, Sharon, Baron Zemo, John Walker. I'm kind of like, they give enough to John Walker where I'm satisfied. I didn't really find John Walker super, super interesting as a character overall. So I was fine with what they gave us. Um, I'm trying to think of other thoughts I had on the series as a whole. Overall, I'd say it was a really good series. I really look forward to watching it each and every week. The highlight for me of the entire series was episode four. The weakest episode, I'm going to say maybe episode two for me was a little weak. I even really, and don't get me wrong, I think I enjoyed every single episode I watched for being my favorite. I think if I had to pick one that I least enjoyed, it's a tie between two and the finale. It's just, there's something between those two episodes that didn't really quite peg with me. And even episode one, it was more introduction into things. And it was fascinating enough because of the dynamic that they introduced with Bucky and, and him tackling and making amends with his mental health, which I thought was a really powerful message as well. And one thing I really did like about the series is that it courageously has done something that I haven't really noticed MCU projects take on before. Maybe I'm just blind and a little ignorant to that, but they took on some social justice I- issues that I haven't seen them do before. And I thought it was really courageous and fitting, and I thought it was just a really cool addition to the series. So overall, I think the series was pretty great. Um, the way they wrap it up, I... I, I have to believe they're going to make a second season with some of the strings that they left unattached by the, everything was said and done, or maybe they'll take care of it in other MCU projects, but I wouldn't be surprised if they made another episode or another season of Captain America and the Winter Soldier, or if I wonder if they'll change it to Captain America and the Winter Soldier from the Falcon and the Winter Soldier, because now the Falcon or Sam is Captain America. So I guess we'll have to see, but 
Ladies and gentlemen, what'd you guys think of episode six? What'd you think of the series overall? Whatever you thought about it, feel free to comment below and let me know what your thoughts were. All right, so with the Falcon and Winter Soldier stuff down and out of the way, and I'm sorry that took up a really big chunk of this episode, let's get into the next topic, which is going to be the Resident Evil Village demo. For those of you who don't know, on May 7th, the Resident Evil 8 or Resident Evil Village is going to be coming out on release to all consoles, PS4, PS5, Stadia, Xbox One X, Xbox One. I still have an Xbox One X, and I love using it, so I'm really excited for this uh, game, to, game to come out. Me growing up, I, I never really was a fan of the Resident Evil franchise, but I kind of got reacclimated to it when I signed up for Game Pass and I tried out Resident Evil 7. Resident Evil 7 blew my socks off, and I also played Resident Evil 2, the remake, to get a taste of what the series was like before. And that was pretty phenomenal as well, too. So it, I, it, I have no choice but to be excited for Resident Evil Village. Resident Evil Village, from the demo that um, I watched, because IGN put out their gameplay the demo, it's basically continuing the story of Ethan Winters and even uh, Chris Redfield and also Mew Winters in some extent as well. And toward one of the cutscenes that, or at least in the game preview that they show, at least that they showed in Resident Evil Showcase, was um, Ethan gets into a tussle with somebody. We don't know who, but then we see Chris Redfield, and then he go, and Ethan says something along the lines of, you killed Mia, now do me and finish the job. And it begs the question for me. It's like, okay, so we confirm now that Ethan is we're continuing a story which I like because I thought Ethan was a pretty fascinating person and the dynamic between him, Chris, and Mia in Resident Evil 7 was pretty fascinating. So I'm glad we're getting to see him kind of cope with what happened in the past and cope with what's going to happen to him in the future. It sounds like in this game that he has a daughter and she gets taken. I would have to imagine that it's the daughter of him and Mia, which the fact that they allude to Mia in Resident Evil 8 depending on what choices you made in Resident Evil 7, it doesn't quite make sense. For the respect of the, Out of respect for those of you who haven't played Resident Evil 7 yet, I won't say what that is, but I'm curious to see what writing they're going to have to work around with, depending on what decision you made in 7 in terms of Mia. So that's going to be really fascinating as well. But with the gameplay demo, for those of you who are curious about the gameplay demo and want to see it, it is on YouTube, IGN's page. It starts off with Ethan running into this really odd old woman and she is crazy and she's just laughing and cackling and he's like well okay and then she he, he's running around this village looking for people and he's trying to get into the giant gate he can't get in he runs into these two people who are in the shed next to him and then he's like hey don't worry i'm not these monsters you guys have been dealing with what's wrong it's this woman and her father her father was hacked up by one of those monsters bleeding profusely and they need help so what does he do he no choice he helps them with <laughs> the being the good man that he is um so he brings them out of the back way through this little hut and into this house where all of their friends are hiding out because the whole village is obviously gone to shit because all of these monsters are attacking they keep referring to this character named mother miranda who from what i've been hearing on game informers nine foot five which wow that's a really that's a very powerful villain and antagonist that I'm really curious to learn more about as we play the game which is coming out next week because I can't wait to play it but um oh let's see um sorry anyways um so then they knock on the door and this guy just comes out with a shotgun pointed right in their grill like hey stop your screaming they can hear you and they basically beg for them to come on in 
and the, the the two citizens that Ethan's helping and the people who are hiding out in the house they know each other they're all, all when you're when you live in the same village you can't really help but to know everyone who lives in the village unless your village is like 10,000 people which in this case I have to imagine it's like 20 or 30 at this point so they go in and they just see all these people hiding out and Ethan's like this is all that's left in the whole village and they're all like freaking out not knowing what to do people are dying people are hurt well in the middle of all this ruckus the woman's father who got hacked up by the monster who you're helping gets it, it starts to transform you know from the wounds it's like the classic resident evil formula right you get bitten by the zombie you turn into the zombie that's kind of what's happening here except he is just he's going ham on these people he grabs this site and just basically cuts this woman in half he's biting off people's necks it's quite gruesome it's quite bloody it's exactly what you're looking for if you're into resident evil and if you like the formula of seven they seem to be sticking with that in eight but and then it just kind of goes from there you run away the only survivors of that attack are you and the guy's daughter you go up into the shed you're trying to get out she gets feelings for or she she tries to help her father because he's transforming between this werewolf like thing and him and she tries to help him and then she goes dead and so everybody's dead basically now in the entire village but ethan's now ethan's alone and he's like why is everybody around me just die why does this keep happening and you get this moment with ethan where it's like all this death that he's had to face in seven all the things that he's seeing in eight and we don't know what all that is yet but it's like it's coming to a head for him it's like he how much more can he take and it's a really strong moment i think to round off the demo in general and i'm really interested to see what we get out of him as a character kind of going forward so um overall impressions of things like the gameplay what's it like compared to resident evil 7 what's it like compared to the rest of the franchise well what's it like compared to the rest of the franchise i'll start off there the overall mechanics are the same you've got these monsters who can turn regular people into them which that's been a resident evil staple since the dawn of time which they started 25 years ago because now capcom and resident evil franchise has been around for that long which is insane to think about but i'm really excited to see the overall gameplay adjust so like the gameplay for me seems to be about the same as it was in seven it's that first person camera angle um same mechanics where you get to craft you've got to find these objects to open up gates and whatnot so if you have liked that particular aspect of biohazard and even in other resident evil games you'll like that in this one i think as well and then also the one thing that really stood out to me was the overall vibe of resident evil 8 and the environment which you're occupying the when you're exploring the village you when you get to explore an entire village your environment obviously going to be a lot more open it's going to be a lot more for you to explore there's going to be a lot more to see there's going to be a lot more space for you to kind of move around in for me, I'm okay with it, but the one thing that I really liked about 7 was the fact that you were pretty claustrophobic the entire game. Like, the most space you get is in the, um, oh, what is that? The baker's, like, side yard, essentially, is the most room you get in the entire game to move around. And it really added into the fear factor. Like, if you're a horror game fan, like, that really helps when you've got claustrophobic spaces to work with. And in Resident Evil 8, at least in the village, it seems to kind of stray a little bit away from that but we really won't know for sure until we get to play the entire game so i'm really curious to see how i'll feel about that additional openness throughout and maybe the castle because i haven't seen any gameplay from the castle maybe the castle will be claustrophobic 
in that respect, and it'll add to that horror element that I really, really enjoy, which dark, scary hallway, you can't really see much, and you're a first-person camera angle, so who knows, but that that's just kind of my overall thought on the demo in general. Did the demo enhance my excitement for the game? I'm going to say yes, because earlier, I didn't really, th- I thought I was going to wait until the game went on sale to buy it, which I still might, but the demo really enticed me to possibly buy it on the day it comes out and even take a vacation day to play it because it looks like a lot of fun so um guys if you're curious about the resident evil 8 village demo feel free to go ahead and look up all of that on youtube it's on ign's game channel so um what what are your thoughts on the demo if you've seen it already feel free to comment down below as i take a sip of this coffee which has gone cold now oh dear all right guys so with the Resident Evil Village demo down out of the way, I'm going to give you, I'm going to kind of step into the next topic, which is going to be We Happy Few. So for those of you who don't know what We Happy Few is, We Happy Few is actually kind of an old game at this point. It came out in 2018. I played it right when it came out. I think I was like, I was just before I went back to school for the semester, but I played it in 2018. And now with Game Pass, I've revisited it because Game Pass is awesome. If you guys don't have it, highly recommend it. And I've played through Arthur and Sally's playthrough so far. The game is made by Compulsion Games along with Gearbox Publishing. Basically what the game is about, for those of you who may be new to it, is it's about living as three different characters. You play as Arthur Hastings, Sally Boyle, and Ollie Starkey, who are three different perspectives in England, or Great Britain, I guess you could say, where you live in this alternate universe where essentially... Germany won World War II and what the implications were for England if that actually happened. So it's a really fascinating uh, premise and a really fascinating story to go through and play upon. And I think that's what I've enjoyed most about We Happy Few so far because I've only played through Arthur and Sally. And to see those two characters cope with the choices that they had to make throughout the war, the choices that they have to make since the war ended, and the things that they have to do to survive, it's really fascinating for me, and there's a lot of good story to tell there. And you live in this this world where basically um, there's this thing called joy. The only way for um, the government to decide for the only way for people to truly cope with what they had to do during the war was to basically drug everybody on something called joy, where basically everything seems a lot more happy, and you, you're not unhappy, because if you're unhappy, you're a downer, and everyone essentially beats you to death. But that that's kind of like the really short cliff notes version of it. So um, I just wanted to give my thoughts through Arthur and Sally's playthrough so far. And I think I might do a full in-depth analysis in a separate video later on, but basically so far I've, I've enjoyed the game for those of you who absolutely hate buggy games. You'll probably hate this game with all of your might because it's, it's a really buggy game for me. I don't really care so much about, bugs as long as they don't interfere interfere with me progressing through the story and so far they haven't so it hasn't taken my enjoyment out of it too much but if you guys hate unpolished games that are buggy that's the downside to what i've seen so far um if you guys are really into story this game tells a really really good story and it's got some interesting main quests as well where i'm seeing it lack so far is in the side quests to me the side quests really aren't worth playing the reason being is because they're really the only reason you play the side quest is to level up your character and to gain skill points. It's kind of like that formula in games you see where players get that skill tree, they get to unlock different skills if you get a certain amount of points because you gain experience and all that other good stuff. 
And to me, a lot of the skills that you can gain aren't worth it. it. Like some of them aren't very exciting and it really renders the side quests not very interesting. And there's not really a lot of story to be told in the side quests either. So if you guys are like debating on playing it right now, I would say go ahead and play through all the main quests, but avoid the side quests because the side quests don't really bode too many exciting things. But if you're looking for just a really good story um, and a quick playthrough, like so far from what I can tell, we happy few is a really, really nice touch for that. Arthur and Sally have been really interesting characters who have had both really interesting challenges that they've had to go through and really interesting hardship that you get to see um, kind of square in the face. And it, it, you get to take a walk in their shoes, and I think it's really, really fascinating. So that's just kind of my thoughts on the game so far. I'm trying to think if there's anything else of note in the game that I'm forgetting to touch on. I'll probably think of something later, but that's what the longer uh, version video will be for. So, guys, have you played We Happy Few? If so, what did you think of it? Whatever you thought, feel free to comment down below and let me know. Or even who your favorite character to play through was, let me know down in the comments below too. All right, so... Let's get into the next game that I'm kind of revisiting through Game Pass, which is The Evil Within. So The Evil Within was made by Bethesda, Microsoft recently, or Xbox. Actually, no, Microsoft recently acquired Bethesda within the last year. And because of that, a lot of Bethesda's games have been coming to Game Pass, and The Evil Within was one of them. I've been wanting to play The Evil Within, I think, for like five or six years. Like It came out on Xbox One in 2014. Tango Gameworks was also involved. It looked like a really fun uh, survival horror game that I wanted to play because I hadn't really dwelled into the survival horror uh, genre in general as a gamer, and I just thought it would be a really cool take on it, but I never really got around to it, and now with Game Pass, I'm like, well, I'm paying for Game Pass, so I don't have a choice. So I played it. What do I think about it overall? I really enjoyed the game. I think that it offered a lot of unique um, gameplay mechanics and an interesting enough story to where... It made the ride a lot of fun, and it also made it, it did a good job of making you feel confused, but in a good way. It, what, I, what I mean by that, it made you feel like you were going insane along with the character Sebastian Castellanos as the game progressed, but it wasn't to the point where you'd be confused by the story, if that made sense. Like You could still follow the, the story from A to Z and also get to see Sebastian Castellanos' uh, life outside of his work as a police detective. So um, overall, I thought it was a really fun game with some really great game mechanics. The combat is interesting. It's like I said, this game is very unique from other things that you'll see. It's not going to be like Resident Evil. Exactly. It's not going to be like Outlast. It's going to be, you're basically it's survival horror, but you're given pretty powerful weapons to take on your enemies and the enemies, the zombies are pretty powerful and they only get more powerful as the game goes on so like as the game kind of starts out they're just your classic run in the middle they walk around they'll slap you around they'll they'll kill you if you let them pretty gruesomely too the game is quite violent like this is probably no this is the most violent game i have ever played barring gears of war as well it's just this game is so gruesome like when you get killed and you really feel it you feel it and it's like oh that's kind of nasty and it makes your stomach crawl a little bit so if you're into the blood and gore like this and the survival horror genre this game you're gonna absolutely love this game it's great um but the gameplay mechanics were interesting enough to where it was like okay you had enough variety in your weapons the one thing i absolutely can't stand that games do is the weapon wheel i'm not a huge fan of the weapon wheel and i know a lot of games do it 
including one of my favorite game franchises, which is Assassin's Creed. But the weapon wheel, for me, is a problem in this game because of the fact that when you are choosing and selecting your weapon, it slows down time. It doesn't stop time. It slows down time around you, which is kind of a double-edged sword because you could say, okay, it slows down time, which is a lot more realistic. But it's also really frustrating because it's like, okay, you have to really think quick. It can be really frustrating from a gameplay perspective to have that mechanic. So kind of have to pick your poison on that one. For me, I'm going to go with the fact that it was frustrating as hell because it... I just I just didn't like it. I don't know how else to say it. It was just really annoying. I think that's why I didn't like it. It was just super annoying because I'd be in the middle of picking a weapon or trying to craft an arrow for my crossbow and I'd get whacked by a zombie or get killed by one and it just really pissed me off. So um, one thing that I will say that took me out of the game and like I said, I'm sorry if I'm kind of um, jumping around a little bit on this game, but um, the one thing that really took me out of the game overall was the fact that how powerful the zombies got by the time the game was over like the very beginning of the game the only thing that the zombies could do was punch you kick you they could wield some weapons but by the end of the game the zombies are straight up yielding like machine guns and shooting you like they're they walk and they're like sprinting and they're doing all this stuff and i'm like whoa they're just getting more and more powerful as the game goes on which for the story, I think it makes sense because of the fact that, hey, as our, our protagonist Sebastian is going deeper into the mind of this essentially insane person and losing and is losing control, and the person's losing control, so are the enemies that we see throughout it, and they progressively get crazier and crazier and harder to deal with, which makes sense. But for me, it just, from a gameplay perspective, it wasn't, it just wasn't consistent enough for me to really enjoy it like it like seriously when you're having zombies who aren't able to shoot at you at the very beginning of the game literally shooting at you by the end it's kind of like how did we get here it's almost like it, it, it progressed so fast that it was almost like it became two games by the time it was all said and done it was like you were playing two different games by the time the game was over and that took me out of it just a little bit that's a bit of a nitpick it made sense for the story but from a gameplay perspective for me it didn't make a ton of sense at all so um I'll give my overall thoughts about the game, um, and I'll maybe I'll even do a little bit more of an in-depth video later on as well, because I realize that the podcast episode's getting a little long, but um, I would say that if you're into, I would recommend this game to any of you who have Game Pass and are just looking for something different. For those of you who haven't tried it and are really into the blood and gore and the um, survival horror genre, you're going to absolutely love this game too. And those those would be, I'd say, the two best recommendations I have for this game in general. If you don't have Game Pass um, and you just want to try Game Pass for a month, it's totally worth the 15 bucks. Or if you just want to go buy it and have it forever as your own copy, it's probably only 10, 15 bucks right now because the game is almost a decade old. So um, who is the game not for? If you don't like blood and guts and makes you feel queasy, I wouldn't recommend playing it because you'll see a lot of it. Like literally the game, like you will see the craziest gore you've ever seen in your life unless you've played Gears of War, and even in this game, like, this takes the cake, too, so, um, those are my overall thoughts on The Evil Within, I might do a whole separate video just talking about a full in-depth review, so, if you guys have played The Evil Within, or have you played The Evil Within 2, I've played both, I haven't played The Evil Within 2 in a while, but whatever you thought about either game, feel free to comment down below and let me know what you thought. Alright, so, coming up next now, uh, Xbox Cloud Gaming Implications, so, it was announced earlier this week that Xbox was going to be releasing a beta for their Xbox Cloud service. I think this might be 
a random sample of Xbox Game Pass Ultimate members that get selected for the cloud service, which for those of you who don't know, basically what Microsoft is trying to do with Xbox Game Pass is they're trying to offer games as a cloud service where basically you can just log into the Game Pass app and play any game you want from like an app. So like hypothetically speaking, you could log into your smart TV, download the Game Pass app, and play your games through there. It's kind of like what Google Stadia has been trying to do for like the last few years where they have all of your games living in the cloud and then you don't have to own anything. You just pay a subscription and you don't even really need a console because all you need is the app. So um, they're letting that beta out to a select group of people and I'm really curious to see how it'll go if the technology is there yet and if the world is ready for it. I think that this could, if it goes well, and I think this is where the gaming industry is going toward, in the future in general is I think that someday Xbox is going to still make consoles, but I think that the future of gaming is actually all going to be in the cloud. Like I think someday nobody's going to own a um, console like whatsoever. I think it's all going to be cloud-based. And to me, it, it makes so much sense too, right? Because then it will save gamers a ton of money because they don't have to go out and spend four or 500 bucks on a new console. I mean, even right now, like I, I've always wanted to like, play ps4 because i've never been able to own one and i'm like waiting for them to get down to like two three hundred bucks and a, to buy a brand new ps4 today is like four or five hundred dollars which is insane to me and if i just had a cloud service to where i could just go on and play some of the great games that um these companies have made if i could just pay a subscription and buy an app for it i'm totally gonna do that i'd rather pay 15 bucks a month for as long as i want rather than have to buy a piece of hardware that's gonna collect us sit in my house and i have to maintain it and then buy discs for it too so I think that that's where the gaming industry as a whole in general is going to, and I think it makes a ton of sense. Also eliminates waste too, which is really nice. The one downside I hate to say with that is I love buying consoles through the that feeling of opening up something really, really cool and having that experience. And plus, the artwork that comes into making some of these consoles is quite good. Like, So for me, I'm a ginormous Gears of War fan. That's actually one of the main reasons why I go with Xbox and have for a long time. And they make really cool consoles, like basically with every Gears release um, that they have. So like Gears 4, they came out with their limited edition bundle. I bought it. It was awesome. Uh, Gears 5 came out. I bought their bundle. It's actually sitting. I'm looking at it right now. And it's, it, it was, it was the, the show, the console was created so well. It was like, it, it's almost like art. Like when I look at it and I play it, I'm like, that is a really cool piece of art that I have in my room to sit back and enjoy. So that's the one downside to not having the console. But like I said, at the end of the day, um, I think the option will always be there for consoles, but for those of you who are more maybe casual or just want to dip their toe in the water, I think this cloud gaming thing is going to be huge, and I think this is going to take Microsoft and Xbox and just blow it through the roof. Like I think they're going to be the most popular gaming platform, service, whatever, for a long time with this because they're they're going to make some big noise, so... Guys, I want to know what you think about the Xbox Cloud Gaming. Would you use Cloud Gaming today? Would you rather not have a console? Would you rather have a console? What's some pros and cons of between? Whatever you think, feel free to comment down below. Let me know whatever you think. All right, so to kind of round off the episode, because like I said, I know this is getting a little long. Um, I want to give you guys my thoughts on Godzilla versus Kong, which actually came out almost about a month ago now. I went and saw this movie two, three weeks ago, and I just decided that for this... Um, Coffee and Kernels episode, I'd throw in some of my thoughts, not necessarily a review, because I don't want to give spoilers away for the movie for those of you who haven't seen it, but, um, so basically, Godzilla vs. Kong is the most recent entry into the Godzilla and Kong franchises. We kind of see them intertwining 
in this movie and it makes for a really really interesting time we get to see these characters face off in battle in a really excellently done cgi based movie and i i had a phenomenal time with it i thought it was a pretty great movie the action in it i could have if i'm being really honest i wish i would there could have been another fight or two between godzilla versus kong and a little less of the human side of things we see the humans because in this movie they're trying to do two things right they're trying to merge the story of kong and the people that have interacted with him and they're trying to merge the story of godzilla and the people who have interacted with him and to me they jam it all together and it it does it does well it does well it doesn't blow my socks off but it does well it doesn't seem disjointed all seems to line up perfectly the only thing i will say is that they almost have too much of the people in it and not enough of godzilla versus kong but the moments when you see godzilla and kong fighting each other it it's 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 so much fun like you have a ton of time with it you're really you're you're really rooting for your favorite character for me mine is kong just by nature i don't know why i like kong better it's just something about kong i just really dig that's not to say that the performances in the movie were poor like that that's not at all i'm saying in fact i thought all the performances were fine nobody really stood out nobody was bad but um the one the most interesting dynamic i could say about the movie between the people and the titans godzilla and kong was the interactions between the little girl and kong because you can tell that they've really formed a bond throughout all of kong's movies and you really see that actually add weight to the story that's told in this movie and i think it actually helps carry the movie a little bit and i just thought it was really really super interesting and all the implications that went with it so um overall what i will say about the movie it's a great time if you're looking for an action flick in the theaters or if you're just wanting to um if you're an hbo max subscriber it's definitely worth a watch i will tell you i think this movie is much better suited if you go and watch it in the theaters because of all the color all of the giant monsters and the fights like seeing it on a larger screen definitely absorbs you into the experience a lot more and for me it amplified the fights tenfold and it made it a lot more exciting I can't say that I wouldn't be able to say to say the same that I enjoyed this movie as much if I watched it on my TV at home. So that would be my one recommendation. If you like the Godzilla or Kong franchises, you'll like this movie. If you're looking for just a really fun, exciting action movie, you'll find this movie interesting. If you don't like either of those things, maybe skip this movie. But overall, other than that, I say go for it. Or if you're just an HBO Max subscriber looking for a good time for a couple hours, you might like this movie as well. So um, I'm going to give this movie a thumbs up. Go ahead and watch it. So, ladies and gentlemen, what do you think of Godzilla vs. Kong? If you haven't seen it, or if you have, let me know your thoughts down below. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, so I've kept you all long enough. This will do it for Coffee and Kernels Episode 2. This has been a Bankrupt Hippo Podcast. I've been Bryce, and thanks so much for joining me for Episode 2. And as always, have a great day. <laughs>